This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Good morning. You're listening to the best of the Breakfast Grill for 2022. I'm Chong Jen Sun. Today, we revisit conversations of the Breakfast Grills focusing on companies. In spite of economies largely reopening in 2022, there were still many trials and tribulations for companies this year due to rising inflation, higher costs of borrowing due to central banks raising interest rates, and consumers generally tightening their belts. But banks are a good barometer of the economy. It is also a clear beneficiary of rising interest rates as loans are repriced faster than deposits and this would be a boon for banks' margins. In November of 2022, Wong Shaoning spoke to Dato Ong Eng Bin, CEO of OCBC Malaysia. OCBC is the second largest bank in Southeast Asia and has been in Malaysia for over 90 years. No one can ignore the volatile financial markets with the era of cheap money coming to an end. Even in Malaysia, Bank Negara has hiked rates four times in 2022 which is usually good for net interest margins. But will this be a damp for loans growth for OCBC. Also, how has rising inflation affected consumption patterns for bank customers? Here is what Dato Ong had to say. Definitely, I think uh, it's not only dampening, dampening loans, but of course, all our investments, bonds and all mm. that will suffer losses, which has happened last year yeah. and, the, and, and this year as well. It's going to... I think the Fed is really uh, determined uh, to bring inflation down. So I think um, it will lead to some kind of volatility in the emerging markets. Malaysia cannot be spared because we are just so tied to the world economy. Yeah, because I, I did also look at your numbers as usual. And um, I did notice the bank had a foreign exchange loss of $237 million for the first half, uh, whilst a realised gain of $200 million on trading derivatives. Is this the new challenge for OCBC, managing these investments? Also, all treasurers are going to have a very busy time managing yeah. their portfolios. I think uh, I'll be very surprised if people are making big, big bucks. Now. It's actually managing your portfolio. But of course, some of this will reverse over time. But because accounting uh, rules, you have to recognize them. You have to mark but, to market, uh, right? Mark to market is inevitable. But I think there will be some time when the, the tapering of interest rate rises will happen. It may be not immediately, but maybe 12 months from now, mm -hmm. I think central banks all over the world, they will be happy that I think the consumer demand. Some people say that um, the reality of inflation is too much consumption. I believe that's the, that's the case uh, because I think we've been locked down so much. If you go to everywhere, everywhere is bustling. Mm -hmm. Consumption in most countries today is driving GDP. But isn't that good for banks when consumers want good. to consume, they want to borrow? That's how you make your money. Yeah, if everybody is. kept their money in savings, that's not good either. Yeah, it's good. But I think it's one of the key drivers of uh, inflation, if I'm not mistaken. And I think with very tight labour supply, I think we are also kind of worried about the inflation expectations that's built into your wage mm. across, the, uh, across the world. And once it gets like that, it gets into a spiral that's very hard to control. So I think I, I, I recognise that there will be a lot of pain, but it may be necessary. Dr. Ong also talked about his growth strategy for 2023 and if the pandemic has changed banking for the better with an acceleration towards digitalization. OCBC has 31 conventional branches and seven Islamic. And in the past, foreign banks were hampered on that front because they couldn't just open branches. 
Does this matter less now? Here's how Dato Ong responded. Yes, it does. Uh, I think one of the uh, initial meetings that we had with the uh, governor is that if indeed the digital banks are able to open uh, business without branches, can the banks also do the same? And can we was, also reduce branches? What was the answer for she the governor? Yes. Uh, we're very glad that she's very open and the fact that we're able to actually grow new customers now with our own digital uh, initiatives. Today, uh, we don't have to open branches. So no, our, no more plans to open any more branches in Malaysia? We won't say never, say never. But mm. uh, I think at the moment, we are fairly represented in all the key towns and uh, Klang Valley, of course, the major areas. And we, we have the, for consumer and business, we have the EBIS, which we are opening thousand over customers' accounts. In one of Wong Xiaoning's questions, she said banks also need to be on their toes with a credible digitalization plan, especially with Bank Nagara dishing out five digital banking licenses approved by the Ministry of Finance. For a 90-year-old bank like OCBC, does it feel threatened by the five digital banks? Uh, not yet. I think we are looking to see what uh, strategies they have. We have a team looking at what we expect them to do. But I think it's good for consumer all around. I mm. think we've seen how it happened in Singapore, in Hong Kong and all that. They will not be an immediate threat. I think we have some learnings from them. Uh, at the same time, we also look at ways we can collaborate with them because we always believe that nowadays to grow, you have to be more strategic. Partnerships is the way we grow and we don't rule out... Um, um, doing business with each other. We've been actually doing a lot of business with our fellow subs, uh, fellow bankers, whether it's Maybank in the syndications or we place money with them and stuff like that. So, so I do believe that we have a lot to offer the digital banks. Mm. Uh, same, 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 uh, same for them as well. That was Dato Ong Ingbin, CEO of OCBC Malaysia. Another segment of, of the financial industry which appears to be in a sweet spot is Islamic financing. Islamic financing is the fastest growing segment in Malaysia, contributing 70% growth and now accounts for 37% of the total loans in the system worth 715 billion ringgit. But is the Malaysia market too small and becoming saturated? In September 2022, Wang Xiaoning spoke to Dato Rafiq Marikan, CEO of Maybank Islamic Bank. Is venturing abroad something that Maybank Islamic is focusing on, especially in Indonesia where you already have a presence and despite being the most populous Muslim nation, Islamic banking penetration rate is low at under 10%. How much focus will there then be on that market over the next few years? Here is how Dato Rafiq addressed this. Okay, so maybe in terms of just a step back of uh, what I do actually, we, we, we deem it as three core markets that we have, Malaysia, Singapore and Indonesia. And then under Maybank Islamic, we do have a, a wholesale branch in Dubai. Right? So that is, in a way, a testament to the aspiration that we have. So even in Singapore, for example, the contribution is quite sizable. Uh, we have clients on the corporate side as well as on the consumer side that has actually helped us to grow our Islamic franchise through a window in Singapore. Indonesia, you're right, less than 10%. It's about 7%. The potential is, is huge. But there are also a lot of local Sharia banks in they're, they're much bigger. Yeah. They're, they're much bigger. So what we have done is that uh, currently our operation is an Islamic window, not a separate subsidiary in terms of product development based on what we have actually developed here in Malaysia. If it's suitable for, say, the Indonesian market, we're starting to actually introduce those products. That's one. 
twist in terms of approach. If we see that, for example, collaborating, because the conventional banks are much bigger than, say, the Sharia Bank. And in banking, capital is quite key. Liquidity is also important. So when, when you look at how you want to actually address some certain segments of, of the consumer base there, then you've got to differentiate one. Two is you've got to be open to collaborating with other Sharia banks there. Datuk Rafiq also spoke on why most of its financial matrices for Maybank Islamic appear to be superior to the competition, specifically Maybank's ROE, which is above 20%, is far higher than its closest competitor, RHB Islamic, which is in its mid-teens. How is this achieved and sustainable? Here is his response. Okay, so you have to take a look at the model. The model that uh, how we started Islamic Finance for the Maybank Group was that uh, it's going to be leverage and but when we say leverage is, should we create multiple uh, duplicating platforms to serve the same customer base? But don't the other banks also take a leverage model like so RHB, we, they, they, for they, example, they, they do now. and they CIMB? Do now. They do now, but uh, I, I suppose in terms of how leverage model is being defined and being executed, there are differences. So isn't this just clever financial engineering though then? It's more about clever business. It's more about how do we serve the customer better. It's about clarity, right? I mean, if... If your platform can actually serve a dual uh, product or, or financial system, then should you replicate it just to be a purist? So here you're going for scale then, clearly. We want to be able to actually uh, aspire to, to, to create a, a franchise or a business that is able to actually grow in the first instance. Secondly, it's also to be able to meet the needs of the, the wider community that we're serving. Wang Shani also posed a question on if Maybank Islamic would consider inorganic growth as there are standalone Islamic banks such as Bank Islam. SP Global also expects further consolidation in the Islamic banking space and that MA would allow Maybank Islamic to have the scale and size and catapult it to the top three in the world. This was Dato Rafik's response. So I think probably for us, the bigger objective would be, uh, would we need to do it purely to be ranked top three? Which I know is one of your ambitions though. Uh, We want to be a global Islamic bank, but not necessarily to actually do an inorganic uh, exercise. But it's faster. to hit a number. In Malaysia, for example, uh, when we actually looked at, uh, is there anything that we need to do? I would say no, because the franchise is of a certain size. It's a different play, Mm. right? And then these days, I think over the last two years, we did see that you have an option to actually grow, which is inorganic, which could be through digital. How do you enable digital? And the growth that we're seeing over the last two years has been quite encouraging in, in a market whereby it's, it's heavily banked, as well as uh, the level of banking penetration is quite high, right? Now, if we want to actually expand beyond our shores, uh, would we consider an acquisition? There are other approaches as well that you can actually do. Uh, which are? Which are, if you take a look at uh, digital banks, right? Um, products we have. Digital banks as in growing your digital banking franchise or acquiring a digital we, bank? We, we, think, we think that uh, partnering collaboratively uh, outside may actually allow us to reach that global aspiration uh, in a slightly different way compared to, say, going to, to go for licenses. Okay. So perhaps partnering with an e-wallet player in Indonesia or something digital fintech in Indonesia? That's always an option. That was Datuk Rafiq Merikan, CEO of Maybank Islamic Bank. We'll have more from the best of the breakfast grill after these messages. When we return, we'll explore the companies in the food and beverage space. BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U Mobile. 5G now with you.
BFM 89.9, I'm Chong Jensan and you're listening to the Best of the Breakfast Grill 2022, the company edition. Now we turn our attention to the consumer space where we feature two prominent companies, Dilma Tea from Sri Lanka and A&W. Dilma Tea has grown from a household name in Sri Lanka to an international icon of Salonis Tea available in over 100 countries. Philip C. questioned CEO Dilhan Fernando on its key accountability that for most companies is the return to shareholders. For 2020 and 2021, Dilma delivered credible performance with 20% PAT margin and 30% ROE. But will 2022 financials look very different and how do you balance this with other social responsibilities like rebuilding the nation? Actually, not because globally um, you have tea is a tea is a product that uh, is not affected significantly by recession. It's an affordable luxury, mm. and for us, we have um, a very strong philosophy. My father set out to have a business that would serve humanity with kindness to people and nature. And this is something we take very seriously because if you focus on doing things right, the profits will follow. So for us, it's not about commoditization. It's not about um, making profits in market, but it's about offering a quality product, offering a product that also has sustainability embedded. So we are involved in climate change. We're involved in agroforestry. We are involved in um, gender issues in Sri Lanka, our child care centers for children with, with uh, Down syndrome, with cerebral palsy. I mean, we've got a thousand different... Yeah, you have so many actions and initiatives across the board. I mean, I mean, there's such a big intent to make a difference in wherever you operate in your society and communities. But from a financial standpoint, what does 2022 look like? Are you going to see better revenues? Is the margins going to be held at 20%? The biggest challenge would probably be global logistics. Mm. So really not a lot to do with Sri Lanka. Yes, we have devaluation, but uh, we are a dollar-denominated business. Um, so that, um, I guess, is a, is a blessing in a sense. But we also have a huge social overhead. We need to be able to support, I think, something like 10,000 families every month because those are the workers at uh, on our tea gardens and so on. And they need food aid, they need uh, emergency assistance, medical medicines, etc. So yes, costs have gone up. Um, and quite honestly, it is for a time such as this that businesses build up reserves and yep. we have done well. Um, and I, I would say that purely um, if you look at the sequence of events, we have a perfect storm. We had the Easter bombings, we had uh, the pandemic and the role of business, not only for us, but role of every business has changed fundamentally. So today, the option of, uh, you know, CSR is not one uh, th that you can take lightly. And in fact, it should not even be CSR. There is an irrevocable obligation to do good, not only for your workers, but also for the wider community. Because today, when you see a fuel line, what do you do? Do you look the other way? No, you have to get involved. So whether you're a business or whether you're a social enterprise or government or an individual, Everybody is getting involved in Sri Lanka, and that's the spirit that we are seeing. And they will all that is all well and good, but there will be some short-term costs, right? Short-term investments to sort this all out in the short term, right? There will be massive investments. I mean, at this point, we are called upon to fund medicines for government hospitals, uh, mm. to, to fund training, to entrepreneurship development. All these are new costs, but the fact is that they is an obligation. I mean, you can't have a business that operates in isolation that says that, look... Uh, Problems have affected the people, but uh, we're okay. No, that is absolutely not. As a business, we're doing okay. The tea industry is doing okay because it has to do okay. The country needs foreign exchange. So that obligation is upon us, but also to serve the community.
Philip C. also asked Dilhan his thoughts on how his father, the founder of the business in the 1970s, was one of the first corporate celebrities to put his name to the brand and had the foresight to do it in this era. And what were his core values to build the business? Was it just about making money or also helping the country? Here was his response. Well, it was very simple. There were, there were two reasons. I mean, the first thing is that in 1950, when uh, he saw what was happening in the tea industry, and at that time, we produced beautiful tea as we do now, but uh, the tea was being taken to London, it was being blended, and even up until the 1980s, most of our tea was taken to London for a London auction. So mm. clearly, this was a colonial economic system that was persisting post-colonization, uh, or post-independence rather. So uh, he saw that for the country to develop, for the industry to develop, for sustainability, for, for to help the workers and so on, we needed a fairer share of our income, of our revenue from the, from the product. And so you had to start a Sri Lankan brand. So that was his critical motivation to be an and I think an ambassador. You know, well, yeah, but also to be able to to you know his his purpose was strong. So he committed himself. It was not about making money. It was about doing something for a country and doing something for the two million people who depend on tea for their livelihood. So it was much stronger than simply saying, look, let me start a business that will make me more money. And, you know, we are blessed to be a part of that because that philosophy is what drives the business today. It's what encourages our, our, our team. You don't shy away from the identity of being Sri Lankan, right? Even though with all these things happening, you still feel very invested in the country that you're in simply because of all the plantations and the assets you have here. The plantations, the people, um, that that was my father's philosophy. And yes, I mean, we have to weather a few storms. We had a conflict uh, that uh, went on until the, you know, 2008-9. We have the present situation, but uh, we have to continue to champion the best of Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. That was Dilham TCO, Dilhan Fernando. Next, we feature a very identifiable household name in Malaysia. Many Malaysians have nostalgic attachment to A&W, which first set up a presence here in the 1960s, but with rapidly changing consumer tastes and global supply chain shocks affecting the F&B industry, can A&W stay relevant to the next generation and beyond? Philip C. spoke to its global CEO, Kevin Bassner, on how the period of lockdowns of COVID-19 was extremely difficult for businesses. How did they pivot their business? How are they doing post the pandemic period? Here was Kevin Bassner's response. Yeah, the, the pandemic was, uh, uh, you know, not only us, but all businesses has been a very, very, very challenging two and a half years. However, uh, we developed our uh, delivery program in 2019 going into 2020. We were already uh, prepared for delivery, which obviously was the primary factor. I mean, 60, 70 percent of our business uh, during the pandemic was delivered. The remainder of it was was carry out. Uh, now, the business overall suffered about uh, 30, 30%, about one third, mm. I'll be honest with you. Today, uh, coming out of, you know, things opening up again, uh, the business here, uh, the existing stores from 2019 to today, their business is up over 30%. So you're not, are you back to pre-pandemic levels close to? Beyond. Beyond. 30% over pre-pandemic I see, level. okay. In uh, our new stores, uh, both the new stores and the stores that we have been remodeling are breaking all kinds of sales records. We closed and completely redid the, the uh, store in Saramban. Uh, been there since, I think, mm -hmm. 1972 or 1973. Uh, completely closed it down, made a big investment in that store. Sales are double. Sales are double. 
Philip also got Kevin's thoughts on A&W's expansion plans and where are the white spaces. Here is Kevin's response. Uh, we have white spaces uh, all over the country, but mostly uh, we're underrepresented outside Kling Valley, for sure. Mm. And so that uh, is one of the areas that we're focusing on. So uh, just uh, two, three days ago, I think on Friday, we opened a new location, drive through restaurant in Alostar. Right. Record sales every day. Record sales. Unbelievable. Uh, the warm welcome we're getting there. Uh, we were in Alistar many years ago. We're also completely renovating like we did the Saramban store, the, the store on the seaside in Kuala Trungano. Uh, that's under renovation now. Uh, and we expect, uh, you know, great results. Our so so uh, in our line, 62 outlets throughout Malaysia, more than half of it in KL Slango. The goal is to go national, achieve 100 outlets by 2023, perhaps be the top three QSR operator in Malaysia. What does it take to get there? Oh, a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work and big investment. Uh, so our partner here is has been making investments throughout COVID in renovating stores, opening new stores. We're now at 75 locations. Mm. Uh, we have another, uh, I think, seven or eight locations that have opened this year, another 12 scheduled to open before the end of the year. So uh, in talking to our, our partners here yesterday, they're saying they think by the end of the first quarter next year, we'll possibly be to 100 locations. So and part of that is we'll be opening our two uh, uh, first two locations in East Malaysia uh, by the end of the year, uh, scheduled to be in uh, Sabah. Finally, and more importantly, Philip questioned, what was the key to the success that A&W is experiencing now? And was this due to the change in franchise structure, which saw the exit of KUB and the entry of George Ang and Intermark? This was Kevin's answer. 100%. 100%. Our goal, uh, we, we acquired the business in uh, uh, end of 2011, so just over 10 years ago. And uh, I had been involved with A&W previously, came back with the current ownership uh, as global CEO. And I first came out here and I was very, very disappointed with what I saw. Why here. were you disappointed? Just the, uh, the quality of the assets, the quality of the food, the quality of the service had all suffered. Uh, KUB, very nice people, but they were not F&B people. Right, they were not F and B people. I don't have to tell you the history of KUB and the you know uh, uh, political connections, and it was more about that than it was about delivering great brand. They loved the brand, but they didn't understand the F and B business. So we were very fortunate to find uh, George and get him get KUB to sell him the business because he's a true F and B person. Yes, he is. And he's made the investments. And, and when COVID hit, you know, thinking, what are the opportunities? Uh, all kinds of problems, many, many problems, supply chain, shutdowns, lockdowns and whatever. But he said, what are, the, what are the opportunities here? So the opportunities were to renovate restaurants, get real estate, some values on real estate, went out and secured real estate for growth. So now as things are opening up, right, uh, we're not, we haven't been standing still. He hasn't been standing bill. We have momentum going on so we can accelerate the growth. That was A&W's global CEO Kevin Bessner. That caps our retrospective of interviews on companies we've interviewed in 2022. You can listen to all the conversations featured today via podcast on the BFM app or on our website at bfm.my. This has been the best of Breakfast Grills 2022. I'm Chong Jensan, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast 
from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.